podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Wednesday, the 17th of February, and we are brought to you by EPL Index and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, keep your data safe, access things like American Netflix if you're not in the US, access Now TV if you're not in the UK. LibertyShield.com, use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. And we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. Home of Hopcroft is a giftware and homeware company in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks. Uh, Pretty quiet day today, but we have a guest, which is nice. It's very exciting. Uh, Harry DeCosmo will be on to talk about his upcoming book, Black and White Knight, how Bobby Robson made Newcastle United again. So excited to have that that interview. Uh, but first, we'll you know run through the minutia. Um, Champions League last night, Liverpool 2, Leipzig 0. A game very similar to Liverpool's performance against Leicester at the weekend, where they were the better team, gifted Leipzig a bunch of chances, the difference here is Leipzig didn't take the chances the way Leicester did, and they returned the favour by gifting Liverpool two golden opportunities, which Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane gladly took advantage of. A 2-0 win last night is a great result for Liverpool and will give them some confidence heading into the Merseyside derby at the weekend, where they face Everton, obviously. And speaking of Everton, their loanee, Moise Keane, scored one of PSG's four goals last night in the new Camp as PSG swept Barcelona aside 4-1. Leo Messi had put Barca 1-0 up before Kylian Mbappe just decided to show everybody that maybe the Messi era is over and maybe it's the Mbappe era from now on. Goals on 32 and 65, Keane on 70, and Mbappe completing the route on 85. This was a PSG team without Neymar, without Angel Di Maria viciously dissecting Barcelona. I think it is safe to say that the golden era of which Piquet, Busquets and Messi remain is well and truly over at Barcelona. Now, I don't know what Kylian Mbappe is going to do. He's out of contract in 2022. There's been lots of talk about what he's going to do. But whatever he does and wherever he goes, the club he plays for, for the next decade, is going to have a serious chance of winning the Champions League, regardless of who else is around him. He is that special. We are witnessing a very special career 
He's already won one World Cup. And he's 22. He could play in three more. We're witnessing something historic. And we're all very, very fortunate that we'll get to see what Kylian Mbappe does over the next 12, 14 years of his career. Tonight, Sevilla, who are fourth in La Liga, will take on Dortmund, who are sixth in the Bundesliga. Dortmund are not having a good season. They did just announce that Marco Rose of Borussia Mönchengladbach will take over next season as head coach. Uh, But they need to make top four this season or they're going to have some trouble keeping hold of players. Uh, Sevilla are in great form. They are winning regularly in La Liga. They beat Barcelona in the first leg of the Copa del Rey semi-final. They have Jules Koundé, who is maybe the best young defender in the world. And the battle between him and Erling Haaland should be something to watch. That game is at 8pm. Also at 8pm, Porto against Juventus. Not as entertaining from my point of view. I think Juventus are a little bit disappointing this season. Not quite the team they've been the previous nine years where they've won uh, Serie A to canter, more or less. This year, under Andrea Pirlo, they just don't seem to have an identity. They seem to struggle to figure out who they are and what they are. Heavily reliant on Ronaldo to score goals. But there's lots of talent in the team, and they should be a lot better. Porto, they're having an okay season. Second, I think, in the Portuguese league at the moment. They could be third. I haven't checked the table in a couple of weeks. I know Sporting Lisbon are are running away with the title. uh, And that's the only thing that really matters in that league. So, um, yeah, Porto versus Juve at 8pm. I would watch Sevilla versus Dortmund if if I had to pick between the two. That's the one I will watch. Um, Premier League action tonight as well, though. At 6pm. It's Burnley against Fulham in the game I know you've all been waiting to watch. Uh, Fulham obviously sit 18th in the league. It hasn't been an ideal season for them, but they did win their first game since November at the weekend when they beat Everton 2-0. This is a big opportunity for them to close the gap on Newcastle. They're currently seven points behind the tune. This is their game in hand. Burnley sit one point above Newcastle, so there's eight points between these sides. Again, if Fulham can win, it closes that gap up and gives them a real chance. Whether they can win back-to-back games, especially back-to-back away games, having not won in the previous two and a half months, I don't know. I don't think so. I would fancy Fulham to, to play some good football. I think they'll go and they'll give Burnley a proper game. But I think Burnley's now, Burnley being a much better managed team, and Burnley being at home, do give the the edge to the Clarets, who, again, also won at the weekend a comfortable win over over Crystal Palace. I fancy Burnley to win this game, but a draw wouldn't surprise me. From an injury point of view, Burnley have a lot of players who are a doubt. Ben Mee had to be taken off at the weekend um, as part of the new concussion protocols. Chris Wood is a doubt. Eric Peters is a doubt. Johan Berg-Goodmundsen is a doubt, Matthias Vidra is a doubt, Dale Stevens is a doubt, and Ch- Charlie Taylor is a doubt. Now, they'll all have fitness tests, bar Ben Mee, who's going to have a, some sort of concussion assessment. I'm not sure what, the, what the, the ins and outs of that are, but the rest will have fitness tests. If they, can, if they get Taylor 
Goodmanson and Wood fit and ready to go, I would fancy Burnley to win the game. Uh, for Fulham, Mitrovic is ruled out. He's got coronavirus. And Tom Kearney has been out for a while with a knee injury and remains out. That's the 6 p.m. kickoff. At quarter past eight, we get Manchester City away to Everton. City, obviously, top of the table, running away with things, seven points clear. This is their game in hand. We'll send them ten points clear if they win. Everton currently sits seventh, three points behind Liverpool. They had a real opportunity to overtake Liverpool in the table. Uh, they were three points behind with, with three games in hand. Uh, they lost the first of those game in hand when, when Fulham beat them at the weekend. You wouldn't fancy them to beat City or even to get a draw. With the form City are in and the form Everton have been in in recent weeks, one win from five, you really have to take it that City are the favourites going into this game. They've won 11 Premier League games in a row. They look unstoppable at the minute. Ilke Gundogan's the best player in the world. And um, that's all there is to is really is to it. Everton will be without Gabamon and Calvert-Lewin. They'll hope that Calvert-Lewin is back at the weekend. If he's not, they could be in bother there. Ilke Gundogan has a, a hip injury. They're hoping he'll be fit for tonight. I, I'm hoping he'll be fit as well. Fernandinho will have a late fitness test. And um, Nathan Aki is ruled out. He's He's been out for a while. He's obviously had that injury on international duty, came back and re-injured it. And he's been out now for a while. But you would have to favour City to win this game. You really would have to favour them to win this game. The form they're in, the football they're playing, they're just, they just look like a different class. They're playing a different sport to what everybody else is doing. So those are the two Premier League games tonight. You get those two, you get the Champions League. There's, you know, there's good footballing options tonight. And then Europa League, obviously, on Thursday night. Um, we'll run through the gossip before we bring Harry in. Uh, Everton will make a renewed attempt to sign Juventus and France midfielder Adrian Rabiot this summer. Yeah, I'm sure he'll walk away from starting for Juventus to join Everton. Absolutely. Yeah, no, he, he'll definitely turn down uh, guaranteed Champions League football and tons of medals to uh, to join Everton. No no question. Um, Marseille and Croatia centre-back Dujek Chaletakar says he turned down a move to Liverpool in January. Right. So, number one, he didn't say that at all. What he said was, and I quote, I received an offer from Liverpool. It was an honour for me to know that such a club wanted me. We decided with the club I was going to stay. What happened was, Marseille accepted the bid on the grounds that they could get a replacement in, then decided they didn't really want to bother getting a replacement in because they were already in chaos because of the ownership situation, the managerial situation with VS Boas threatening to leave, other players leaving, certain players coming in. They didn't want too much upheaval in the squad. And they decided to tell Liverpool they couldn't find a replacement. So he ended up staying. He was at the airport, ready to get in a plane. At the airport, ready to get on a plane. He didn't turn down the move. He's just being a good pro and saying that he agrees with the club's decision. That's all that's happening there. So goal... Stop being clickbaity. It doesn't work for you. You're not a very good website to begin with. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain striker Kylian Mbappe, 
whose contract runs out in the summer of 2022, says he is happy, but he adds, it is about reflecting for the long term when asked about his future. Um, he would look damnable in Liverpool red. That's all I'll say. He would look incredible in Liverpool red. Raiding forward with Salah and Mane. <laughs> Terrifying every defence in the world. Um, Austrian defender David Alaba wants Real Madrid to be his next club. Once he departs Bayern Munich at the end of the season, and has he has started to learn Spanish. But a move to the Bernabeu depends on the future of Real's uh, Spain centre-back, Sergio Ramos. That's from the Mirror. I would love to know what inside track the Mirror have on David Alaba. Um, I, I think they're just clinging on to the rumours that have been going around for months that Real are his preferred club. And Real may very well be his preferred club. I'm not saying they're not. But the Mirror are certainly not where I'm going to go for the inside scoop on what David Alaba is thinking. Um, Alaba remains Real's top target to replace Ramos, though uh, RB Leipzig's Bayern Munich-bound French defender Dale Upamecano has been their preferred backup option. Uh, Can we just take a moment on Upamecano? He did not have a good game last night, but he was still the best of the Leipzig centre-backs. Comfortably, he didn't gift a goal. He was the best of the three. He was also better than Jordan Henderson, who gifted Leipzig four opportunities, three of them big opportunities. Ozan Kabak was the best centre-back on the field. Upa Meccano was second. He wasn't anywhere close to his best, and there's definitely flaws in his game. But he's 22, and he's a huge prospect. So for Manchester United fans saying that they dodged a bullet, your team paid £80 for Harry Maguire who's not one of the 25 best centre-backs on the planet. Sit down. Shh. Manchester United were close to signing up a Meccano for £1.9 million in 2015, according to the player's advisor. Yeah, I mean, that story's been out there for a while. Um, they were also close at one point to signing Rafa Varane and decided to do something else as well. Um... USA winger Christian Pulisic and Morocco forward Hakim Ziyech have struggled for game time under Thomas Tuchel, and one of them may be sold in the summer. It's been four games. Five games. It's been five games. Can we all settle down? It's been less than a month. They will get games. He is trying to figure things out. Firing Portuguese manager Jose Mourinho would cost Spurs about 40 million euro. I don't believe that to be true. Maybe if you factor in his backroom staff, potentially. But I'm pretty certain he's on 12 million a year. With two years left on his deal at the end of this year. It wouldn't be 40 million. It It wouldn't be cheap. It might be 30 million euro. 32 million euro, but it wouldn't be 40 million euro. If you factor the backroom team in, yeah, it's possibly that. RB Leipzig boss Julian Nagelsmann and Leicester manager Brendan Rodgers are possible replacements for Mourinho at Tottenham. I could see Rodgers at Tottenham. I could see Brendan Rodgers at Tottenham. I know they've tried to get him before, and Eurosport are reporting that Spurs chairman Daniel Levy has tried previously to bring uh, Rodgers to the club and is likely to try again should Mourinho leave. 
I think I think Rogers at Spurs is a is a good fit. Yeah, I'd be in favour of that move for all parties. And obviously, I, I don't think Leicester would be too keen on it. But for Rodgers, uh, he's definitely going to want to manage one of the big six clubs again. Uh, for Spurs, I think he's a manager that would work well. That They've got lots of attacking talent. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's that's not a bad fit. Uh, English winger Damari Gray says he was never offered a new contract at Leicester before a move to Bayer Leverkusen in January. That's probably true and most likely fair. Why would they offer him a new contract? He hadn't done very well there. A new contract should be a reward for a good form, not because you're just there. Now, they could have given him a new contract to protect his value, so they could have got a bigger fee for him, but I wouldn't be extending contract offers to players who aren't playing particularly well. After extending 19-year-old England Ford's Mason Greenwood's contract. Manchester United are likely to prioritise signing a new centre-back or Erling Haaland over a move for Jadon Sancho. Well, Sancho is out of their price range. Haaland is way out of the price range. Uh, a new centre-back is what they need. They need a centre-back, a holding midfielder, And potentially a goalkeeper, depending on what Dean Henderson is. Now, it's it's obvious to most that they need a centre-back to partner Lindelof. But they'll buy a centre-back to partner Harry Maguire. And um, as a Liverpool fan, I would love the centre-back that they signed to be Tyron Mings. Go and throw £50 million at Villa and just be, be done with it. Um, Manchester United are preparing, this is good, to offer €70 million, Euro, £60 million to beat Real Madrid and PSG to the signing of Jules Koundé. His buyout clause is 90 million sterling, over 100 million euro. Sevilla aren't taking 60 million sterling, go away. Uh, Real Madrid have joined the race to sign Braga's Portuguese defender, David Carmo. Liverpool tried to sign him in January, but talk broke down. He just, he just destroyed his leg. That boy would be lucky if he plays football again before 2022. So, AS, I think you, you need to uh, up, your, up your standards. You're a little bit behind there. Uh, Arsenal are only likely to offer David Luiz a contract extension if he agrees to become a, a player coach and accept reduced playing time. Why would you want him on your coaching staff? That's mental. Why would you want him on your coaching staff? Newcastle are not trying to sign Daniel Sturridge on a free transfer, despite rumours. The 31-year-old is a free agent. They should try and sign him, because with Callum Wilson now out for however long, and their desperate need for goals, Daniel Sturridge could at least provide something up front. Um, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer says, No talks have taken place regarding his future at Old Trafford, with his contract expiring at the end of next season. Yeah, I mean, why would they? Like, let's let's see you win something. You, you you don't get a new contract at United for finishing top four. That this is Manchester United we're talking about, one of the biggest clubs in the world, club who dominated English football for twenty years under Sir Alex Ferguson. You're not getting a new contract for finishing third a couple of times. Let's see where you finish this season. Um. I've said before, I, I don't think the club have real faith in him. 
I think that's why they didn't do anything in January. And I think they're going to wait and see how he does this year before they do anything regarding a contract. Uh, Everton director of football Marcel Brands is close to agreeing a new contract with the Goodison Park Club. Smart move. Smart move. He's done largely well there, especially now with Carlo. I think those two work well together. Former Fleetwood Town manager Joey Barton has held talks with Bristol Rovers about becoming the League One club's new manager. He did a really good job with Fleetwood, I thought, anyway. Um, They just decided to go in a different direction, and he agreed. Now, funnily enough, Bristol City, uh, I believe, dismissed their manager last night. So that's both Bristol clubs without a manager as things stand. Um, I mean... Surely, surely Danny Cowley gets a call from one of the Bristol clubs. Surely one of them is smart enough to appoint him as manager. If I'm Bristol City, I'm calling him now and asking if he wants that job. He did a great job with Huddersfield. What he did with Lincoln was incredible. He's one of the best and brightest young managers in England. The way he was treated at Huddersfield was a joke. If I'm Bristol City or Bristol Rovers, I'm calling Danny Cowley and asking him if he wants the job. Preferably Bristol City because it's a championship club and I think he's worthy of a championship job. Um, given what he did at Huddersfield, having taken over when they were an absolute mess and and charging towards relegation to League One, he saved them. Him and his brother, Nicky, did a great job there. And, um, yeah, I, I think if you're Bristol City, you've got to be placing a call to Danny Cowley right now. Uh, Bristol Rovers, absolutely, Joey Barton. And, and I think... It would be fun then, the Cowley and Barton bantering across the city, and if they get, you know, if Rovers could get promoted into the into the championship, if um, if they drew each other in the cup or whatever, I think they, I think that'd be good. I think it'd be good for Bristol, the city, to have both football teams managed by good managers. I think Danny Cowley's excellent, and I think we saw enough from from Joey Barton at Fleetwood to suggest that he is a good manager, which is surprising given. Given that he's Joey Barton, and given what a clown he could be at times during his playing career, I, I think he really shocked a lot of people um, with what a good job he did at Fleetwood and, and how mature he was most of the time. Most of the time. There were one or two incidents that we won't talk about. But, yeah, uh, I'm all in favour of seeing Joey Barton have a good managerial career because he never quite had the career he should have had as a player. I'll stop rambling now. Uh, I do have Harry DeCosmo ready to come in to talk about his new book, uh, which is out next month. Delighted to be joined now by Harry DeCosmo, author of the upcoming book, Black and White Night, How Sir Bobby Robson Made Newcastle United Again. Harry, thanks for the time today. I know you're you're quite busy at the moment preparing for the launch of the book. Yeah, no worries for uh, for, for for that. Thank you very much for for having me on. I'm I'm uh, really looking forward to talking to you. So, let's get into the book. 
why now? Why this book? What was your inspiration for it? What was the desire to write this specific book? So, I mean, it, I always wanted to write a book, and I just think there's a story to be told here because there's a generation of Newcastle fans, specifically of what of one of which I am, that will not remember the Kevin Keegan years, and with the club being being as it is nowadays, in that it seems not it seems to struggle to know which direction it wants to go in seems to struggle to know how to put together a sort of you know a, or even want to put together a club that 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 can challenge uh, there's a there's an opportunity to to hark back to a time when Newcastle were that club um under a man that's incredibly popular incredibly uh, inspirational in every sort of way and um I mean I love to Bobby I've, I've never met him before um but I I, I wanted to pay tribute to him. I think I think there's a story to be told as well in that there's plenty of stuff out there on Sir Bobby, books, documentaries, that sort of thing. But whenever anyone talks about Sir Bobby's career, rightly they talk about Ipswich, where he won two trophies and nearly won the league. Mm. England, where he obviously nearly won the World Cup um, and had so many stories there. Barcelona with Ronaldo and Jose Mourinho, his time abroad. And Newcastle's kind of an afterthought. And I think I kind of wanted to tell the story of the cultural impact that he had as a fan coming back to his club, the sort of romantic element. It, it, there's a, there's in, in those five years, it's like a film. Um, it's like a story in itself. And I just wanted to put it down on paper, really. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think the Newcastle period of his career is often overlooked because you mentioned Ipswich. Obviously, he did incredible work in his 13 years there. He did brilliantly with England having had originally people having some doubts about him. Then he goes abroad to PSV Eindhoven, uh, Sporting Lisbon, um, Porto, Barcelona, back to PSV. And he has great success on the continent, wins league titles, wins a bunch of cups. He comes back to Newcastle in 99 at a time when Newcastle are, I think it's fair to say they're at a low point. Um, the The joy of the Keegan era has sort of, wound down there's question marks over the future of the club and it's often looked at well he just came back and he stabilized but people forget he was there for almost five years and it wasn't just that he stabilized he rebuilt things and he created an excellent team yeah exactly and i think so basically that's where the book picks up it picks up just sort of post or pre it sort of tells the story of the of the Sunderland game, which is the sort of big crescendo to the crisis under Rude Hullet, if you like. Shearer's drop for the game. Everyone knows that story. Um, I go in, I delve into the a little bit into the the build up of that. Um, I then tell the story of his departure, uh, why Bobby needed to come in, how Bobby also, also almost came in in um, nineteen ninety seven, just after Kevin Keegan. Can you imagine uh, Robson following Keegan? That would have been something special and that and Newcastle tried to make that happen and ultimately failed. Um and then it, and then as you say that he 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 re he rebuilds and re I think there's a brilliant quote at the start of the third chapter from Warren Barton where he says it isn't about rebuilding, it's about rebooting. And effectively the club it's not just that it's at a crisis point because of the Sunderland game under Rude Hullet. He'd he'd sort of sown the the the, the division was so deep and the, the the crisis had set in and the rot was so deep 
for Newcastle that time that, that the Keegan era may as well have, have existed 20 years rather than just three years ahead, before it did. And so he comes in and he rebuilds, as I say, but from the from the bottom up. So he gets them back into the Champions League in three years, which is, you know, you might think, well, they were only in the Champions League three years prior to him coming, or two years prior to him coming in. But the truth is that the de- the, the trouble was so deep that it was it, it should have taken much longer to get them back there. But he spent two years. There's two years where he finishes 11th before he finishes 4th, 3rd and then 5th. Uh, and in those two years, there's a lot of streamlining the squad, getting his ideas across and the club sort of just going away in the background and doing what they're doing before they're ready to, to sort of take over the, take over Europe in the way that they did and, and do what they did in Europe, which is also, it's not just the fact that they were in Europe. They were the first team to... And up until last season, I think, when Atalanta did it, the only team to lose their first group of the Champions um, So they've left their mark, and Bobby's left his mark beyond Newcastle. And again, going back to what I said in the first answer, that's kind of the point I wanted to make. People just kind of think, oh, he was there for five years at Newcastle, and he it was a nice end to his career. But actually, he did some pretty extraordinary things. Yeah, if you consider... They finished second in 95-96. That's the season where, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they should have won the league. The following year, Keegan walks just after Christmas. Kenny Dogleash takes over. They finish second again. And then the wheels fall off. They finish 13th in 97-98. Dogleash leaves early the next season. Hullet takes over again. They finish 13th. And then the following season, Hullet starts the season, it, it starts as an absolute disaster. Um, like you say, there's that Sunderland game, which is just an unacceptable result to lose 2-1. But that's that's one of six defeats in the first seven games. Um, and the other result being a draw. So no win, one point from seven. That's basically, at the start of this season, we were looking at Burnley and at Sheffield United doing the same and thinking, oh, well, they're done. They're gone. Mm. you look at Newcastle that season and the assumption was Newcastle are in serious trouble here. They're going down. Bobby takes over on the 3rd of September and brings them all the way up to 11th. So he took over from a team that was going down. Without question, they were going down that season. Took them to 11th. Stabilizes the next season, 11th again. And then 4th in his second full season with a pre-season, with a summer transfer window, etc. to build the squad third the next year, and then fifth in his last season. So to take a team that was on the verge of relegation, on the precipice of just collapsing and falling apart, and stabilize them and then build them into a a two-time Champions League qualifier and a a UEFA Cup qualifier, as it would have been at the time, it is a remarkable turnaround. And people forget just how good a job he did in, in turning them around. Yeah, absolutely. And also in the first season, I think I actually comment. I mean, I don't. there's not much, by the way, of comment per, on purposefully in the book. I think what I've tried to do is I've tried to sort of, because I didn't know, as I never met Bobby, my opinion of him and my love for him is, is, no, is no better than anybody else's uh, who, was a, who was a club, at, a fan of the club at the time. Um, so I wanted to tell the story through the eyes of, you know, the players, the coaching staff, the his family, and all you know these different sort of angles, but but do very little comment. But there is one comment in the first 
chapter where I say basically they got out of the UEFA Cup as they got through um, because they finished because they reached the FA Cup final in the previous year. So and Manchester United won it, so they got there. They got through to the UEFA Cup and they went out to Roma and they went out one nil. Francesco Totti scores a penalty and they draw nil nil at St James's Park. Now they Roma went on to win Serie A the next season. So if you mm. think that they're going back, they're running Roma that close four months after the crisis and the sort of dumpster fire that Bobby picks up. And then they get to uh, a, another Wembley appearance in the semi-final of the FA Cup. There's a recovery that's even quicker on, you know, when you actually go into the detail. But when you look overarching and you think it, it took him two years before his first full season, it's a remarkable job anyway. Yeah. And the way he did it, the way it's, it's, it's purely his, his personality, his enthusiasm, his drive, his love for the club. That that really sort of focused everyone's minds. He was also doing it on a shoestring budget in comparison to both today and even to Kevin Keegan as well. If you think that he didn't spend over ten million pounds on one player, yeah. and that kind of makes a mockery of the current stru- uh, structure of Newcastle, if you like, because they're all say everyone says that Newcastle don't have the money to to compete. Well. You know, okay, it might be difficult to do what to replicate what Bobby did and get into the Champions League and maybe like have half a sort of go at the title as well in those third and fourth seasons. Um, particularly the year that the, the Newcastle finished fourth. I mean, John Carver says uh, that if Craig Bellamy doesn't get injured that season, he thinks that Newcastle go on and win the league in in two thousand and two. And and so I think Sir Alex Ferguson said as much himself. So there's that, and 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 that was all done without spending. And, and to put that into context, Manchester United bought Ruud van Nistelrooy and, and uh, Juan Sebastian Veron for about £40 million combined that season. Newcastle spent most on Woodgate, Jonathan Woodgate, Lauren Robert, um, and uh, and Hugo Bayana, all under £10 million, And yet, he was able to turn them into what he did, purely because of his nous and his, his experience, but also his love and sheer personality. And I think that that's the, that's the beauty of it. And, and that's why it's called House of Bobby Robson. Uh, made Newcastle United again because it's his personality. It's, it, it shines through, and it's it's as romantic as you want to call it, and as uh, you know, it, it it is sort of cliched in a way, but it's all true that you know he it was it was it really came from his drive and his passion for the club, and that's why they they were able to to sort of sow the you know to to to, to create the 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 good feeling after what had gone before. Yeah, and when you consider that. You know, he was also working with Freddie Shepard, Sir John Hall, two guys that had. Uh, Freddie Shepard had not covered himself in glory. Douglas Hall was the son of Sir John Hall, and the two of them basically had distanced the fan base from the club quite a bit with comments that they'd made about the fan base, about how much money they spent on merchandise about comments about how the, you know, the 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 physical appearance of some female fans there was comments about Alan Shearer which did not sit well at all and yet Bobby brought it all back together and I think Freddie Shepherd should count himself lucky he wasn't lynched when he sacked Sir Bobby at the end of it all but Bobby did he didn't just turn around the club on the pitch he turned it around off the pitch as well and like you say he did make Newcastle United again he brought the fan base back to the club he brought the club back to the fan base 
And Newcastle is one of those cities and one of those football clubs where the club should represent the image of the city. Liverpool is the exact same way. Liverpool represents the city of Liverpool. Newcastle represents the city of Newcastle. It's a working class, grit and grind kind of place with a little bit of weekend flash. And Newcastle, the great Newcastle teams, always had that. They had a little bit of flash, but plenty of dog in them. And that team that Bobby built, and he revitalized Alan Shearer's career, it's worth pointing out as well. He extended Alan Shearer's career beyond the point people thought it would because Shearer had had so many injuries to that point. The team he built represented the city. The city could identify with those players. Even the players that came in from abroad bought into Newcastle, club and city. And some of them still speak about the club and their time there as the most enjoyable period of their career, which, Mm -hmm. you know, Newcastle's cold. (laughs) You get guys from France, they don't generally want to live in the cold, but they embraced it and they loved it. And the fans yeah. love them forward. And, and that is a massive part of what Sir Bobby was able to do. Yeah, I think the best example of that is Hugo Viana, who I actually spoke to. Um, I did an interview with him, and I, I cited that interview in the book. Um, basically, he, he, he didn't succeed on the pitch. He wasn't physical enough. He was technically gifted, not fast enough. He kind of didn't suit English football, didn't suit the 4-4-2 formation that Bobby was playing at the time. Uh, was funneled out to the left whenever I think Bobby puts it in his book about being tired of uh, Lauren Robert, so they would put him there um, as a sort of supplement. But he never he struggled himself uh, to settle. But you know, on the pitch, but off the pitch, he would talk about going to uh, you know the beach at Northumberland and talking to fans in the in in the city centre, and and he still remembers the club fondly and the and the fans. Okay, he's not a legend because he didn't produce on the pitch for various different reasons. But there's a sort of there's not a there's not a dislike to to him, and a sort of oh he should have done more. There's a sort of it's a shame rather than and people think oh it's a you know he he's he's it's what if and you know maybe right place right place wrong time. But you, you but the point stands that he bought into the club even even somebody who isn't one of those players who succeeded particularly well in a in a very successful era. He still bought into the club. He still bought into the, the the place and the region and and what it he he, he felt what it meant uh, and that was again because Bobby was a he called him a father figure and mm. you see what Bobby meant to the club and meant to the players and meant and meant to everybody um, you know that there is a sort of there there is a there is a you know you mentioned about the sacking and and Freddie Shepard and things there is a little bit of a rewriting of history which I'm sure we'll get to and I, and I certainly get to it in the book. Uh, which is also very important. I think people need to sort of remember that. But but you know, and 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 I think it's easy to sort of forget that because it was so good at the at the, at the peak. But when it was good, it was. I mean, again, it it, it when you actually when I was researching and when I was doing the interviews, you actually realise how quickly he did it and how, how and how well he knitted everything together. It, it's it's actually quite remarkable and. I think that that's really the whole point is it didn't really matter that he didn't win anything in the end. Um, although we all love, would have loved to do it and 
everyone said that they wanted to win something for him because it, he, it mattered more to him because he was a Geordie and all this. Um, but it doesn't actually matter at the, in the end because everything he did is really what matters. He he made the club, and especially now is a time when 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 the club doesn't feel connected to any all of that thing that you just mentioned is completely gone. The mm. fans are at loggerheads of the club again. That it's distanced. There's nothing to connect. Obviously, even more so in the current climate because fans can't even go to the games. But you know there is nothing to get excited about. There's nothing to get to get behind, and. Everything that this that this book tells the story of is everything that has disappeared now, and I think that's why it'll it'll resonate so much with with, with supporters. Yeah, I think so, and I think as well, Newcastle fans have been through a lot in recent years with Mike Ashley, with multiple relegations, with seeing good players sold off and not always replaced, with with what happened with Rafa Benitez with mm. having to watch Steve Bruce football and obviously not being able to go to the games now and, and cheer on their team or voice their disapproval towards the ownership. I think a lot of fans are frustrated that that's been denied to them as well. And Mike Ashley is probably quite happy that he can lock the fans out for now because nobody's telling him what a dreadful job he's doing as owner of one of the biggest clubs in English football. So for those fans that are, have had all of that over the last, whatever, 10 years that, that Ashley's been there, it, it is a nice opportunity for them just to get a little break from that and, and remember back to when when times were good for Newcastle. That period from when Keegan brought them up until when Bobby left, I mean, it's it's 10 plus years and it is mostly, with the exception of that Hullet period, uh, Rude Hullet period, it is mostly very, very good. And even in that Hullet period, you still had two FA Cup um, yeah. final appearances to get to get to get excited, and about they and played good football. Yeah, exactly. And and you've got to so so. I think, and this is a good point. Actually, people talk about Mike Ashley, and people talk about you know that was the day that Mike Ashley bought the club was the day that the club died. Actually, I think this decline starts when Bobby leaves because, and not necessarily because Bobby leaves, and that's something that you might think it's odd for somebody who 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 wrote a book on him and, and wrote a book, a, a, basically a 200, 300 word tribute to him might say, I don't actually necessarily think that the, the, the decision to get rid of Bobby itself was that much. If it was done properly, not four games into the season, not with all of the trouble that had gone on that, that, that summer and the, and the weeks before, not bringing in Graham Souness with the explicit sort of aim of, of, solving these apparent disciplinary issues that sort of was all the problem and because I, I, because i mentioned in the book and john carver talks about it the final game of the season when they did the lap of honor after losing the semi-final of the cup of the uefa cup to marseille uh they do the lap of honor and, and all of the, like half the stadiums disappeared because they are completely displeased with that with, with the likelihood because they drew against wolves it meant that they had to um, they could have still qualified for the Champions League at the time, but they needed to beat both Southampton and probably Liverpool on the final game of the season, both of which games they, they drew. Uh, sorry, yes, both of which games they drew uh, to to, uh, to get into the Champions League. They failed that, and there was a real dis displeasure around the club because there was a perception that they'd gone backwards. And this is what I'm saying about rewriting history a little bit, that I don't necessarily 
it wouldn't be wrong to make a contingency plan, but the way it happened was the was the was the problem, and that's why I think the decline happened because you could have said to Bobby, "Could you help us?" In the way that Ferguson did, it didn't work out because it was Moyes, but mm. the way that they did Manchester United did with Ferguson, where they asked him to to help with with finding his successor. If if you'd done that with Bobby, or you'd got, or you'd just gone and got somebody who who was, because I'm sure there would have been a myriad of brilliant coaches out there who'd have from Europe or whoever who would have who who would have loved to take in that job instead they sort of bypassed that a little bit looked at this sort of myth of of disciplinary issues which in my research i found out even more that it was a bit of a myth that yes things were there weren't it was a young squad full of you know brash characters like Zakir and Diane Craig Bellamy as everybody knows but the truth is that nothing was really happening in the latter times as and, and in the latter sort of weeks of that se- of 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 and months of his uh in within the squad that wasn't happening at the height of his powers anyway it, nothing had really changed it was just that because the results weren't going so well things were spilling out into the media and and there was this sort of frenzy that was brought up and i think that was why they went for soonest to to sort of calm that down and that and that if you if you're main aim is to control a group of players rather than to get the best out of a group of players which is what Sir Bobby did then you're going to you're going to fall backwards because they're not going to perform because they're going to feel got at and and that everything that Bobby did was he he allowed those characters to be themselves but controlled them in a way that got the best out of them and i think that once once Newcastle lost that that then the club went went backwards and that allowed Mike Ashley to come in um, and make it, and then make a bad situation worse. Uh, but the, to be honest, the club has never been the same since the day that Bobby left. And um, what's really difficult about the the last chapter is how you get the feeling from Mark, his son, um, and you get the feeling from Charlie Woods, who is his chief scout of Newcastle, but also a very close friend, going back to his Ipswich days. Just how much the the it really hurt him, and in his later life, he never sort of let that hurt go. And that's really, really sad. But he never, he never held a grudge, and he never held, you know, he was still the Bobby Robson that everyone knew and loved, and and you know, he still cared about the region and the and the and the city and the club and everything like that. And and uh, and that's what I really think is really, really sad is that. And actually, Bobby, it's not just Newcastle, Barcelona, England, and um, pretty much most of the last fifteen years of his career, he was treated pretty poorly generally. And he just didn't deserve it because he. There aren't many people in the world, I don't think, who could make who can who can get people to forgive certain things on the basis of their personality. Oh, he was a nice guy, and people are rallying against that with people saying Steve Bruce is a nice guy. Currently, Bobby Robson was one of those people that everyone just loved because he was a nice guy, and it was very difficult to to sort of criticize him in a way. Not that he deserved much criticism. Um, and and I think that that's why that that that's kind of the problem I think with with what happened with Newcastle is that the reason that they're so that they are where they are now kind of goes back to 2004, not necessarily because they sacked him, just the manner in which it they did and what happened, what they chose to do post his era that was the problem. Yeah, I think it's it's funny in a way that the disciplinary issues were one of the things that was cited when when Bobby was was let go and then when Graham Souness was brought in and then by the end of that season you've got Lee Bowyer and Kieran Dyer punching the head of each other 
on the pitch uh, under the disciplinarian that was Graham Sunes. Um, the Sunes era and was... And Craig Bellamy. And Craig Bellamy has been sold to Celtic, and gone on loan to Celtic because he's feigned injury and had a big bust up with Sunes as well. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Yeah, all those so things got had, worse had under come. Sunes. Yeah. Yeah, because he because that was the thing that that was the beautiful thing about Bobby was he was able to, and I, th- I think again another of those comments that I make is just after the, the I explain about his sacking. Basically, it's easy to say that he that he lost the dressing room and that they were too much for an old man. That's an easy narrative to take, and that's the option that the club kind of did take. But what isn't explained and what isn't said enough is that he built that squad and he built it over five years. And he got the best out of them because he would. They would tell stories. The stories in there of Bellamy walking off training pitches in the middle of the week, and um, Bobby saying, "See me after, uh, you know, after, uh, in a couple of hours." By which time he's calmed down, he's remorseful, and then he goes out on the pitch and scores two goals on a Saturday. And, exactly. and um, Bobby could and massage the yeah. ego, and he could. Yeah. He could figure out what is the line between which players need a little bit of carrot and which players mm-hmm. need a little bit of stick. And he was able to work yeah. that. That's one of the things, if you, if you uh, see any of the interviews with the players he had at Barcelona, and you mentioned how poorly he was treated there. Let's remember, he won a cup treble there at Barcelona mm-hmm. in his only season, and they replaced him because Louis van Gaal was a sexier name coming off the Champions, uh, Champions League win at Ajax. So they replaced Bobby. Um one of the reasons Ronaldo decided to leave Barcelona was because they were replacing Bobby. If if Bobby had stayed, Ronaldo probably would have stayed. Yeah. Bobby was able to to massage the egos, to play players off each other. He had that experience. Bobby Robson started managing in the 60s. He yeah. had been around. He'd seen it all. He'd managed at the highest level. He'd managed England. He'd seen all the biggest egos in England. He'd been all around Europe. The top teams in in the Netherlands, in Portugal, like it's it's great manager. Is you're right. People do say Steve Bruce is a is a very nice guy, and I'm sure he is, and I'm sure he loves Newcastle with every ounce of his being. But Bobby Robson was all that, and a great manager. Bobby Robson yeah. is one of the few managers who's got two European trophies in his locker. He won a UEFA yeah. Cup with Ipswich. And he won a, a European Cup Winners' Cup with Barcelona. He won league titles with PSV Eindhoven and Porto. He won domestic cups with Ipswich, PSV, Porto and Barca. This is a great, yeah. great manager. Steve Bruce is not that. That's. Uh, I do want to caveat that because I think uh, because it might get cut up and, and there's a moment where I'm sort of saying, yeah, Bobby was a nice guy and that's what people say about Steve Bruce. And what I want to say is that I think it only becomes a, a cherry on top being a nice guy if you first can back it up with being a great manager. And it's kind of similar. I know that Rafa Benitez isn't sort of this warm man in the media, but there was a similar sort of thing that happened with Newcastle and that because he cared in the similar way that Bobby did um, and he saw and he viewed Newcastle in a certain way, uh, and that's something that's that that is perceived that Steve Bruce isn't, and he isn't. When he talks in the media, he talks about, you know, if we can scrape mid table, whereas Rafa Benitez would talk about we need to be in realistically, we need to be in the top eight and doing all this, and we need to, and he would talk about potential, and that's effectively what what Bobby did, and that and and that's why it's a you are then able to talk about him being a nice guy because he 
did all of the other stuff that you've just mentioned first, and that's what matters. And then you can talk about him being a nice guy. What's happening with Steve Bruce mm. is people he's he is struggling and not doing a not doing a particularly good job at the moment, and is and is and Newcastle fans are upset because it's it's then being offset in the media. Well, well, at least he's a nice guy. So you know we we like. Therefore, and Steve Bruce is a nice guy. Works in the media when I go to press conferences and stuff. He's nice. He's affable. He's funny. But he, it doesn't matter if he's not winning games. It's easy to say that about Bobby because he was winning games as well. Exactly. I, I think there is a lot of parallels to be taken between Bobby and Rafa and and Steve Bruce and Graham Souness. Yeah. Both. Th- Rafa wasn't as popular as as Bobby, but he was very, very popular. The most dangerous Mm. thing to an unpopular owner, which Newcastle had then and have now, is a very popular manager, especially one who could be quite outspoken when he needed to be, who was very ambitious and would talk about the need for the club to be ambitious. Rafa did it. Bobby did it. Graeme Souness didn't do that. Graeme Souness took Mm. over and immediately started to lower the expectations. You've just mentioned Steve Bruce lowering the expectations. Oh, mid-table would be a great achievement. Now, I feel sorry for Steve Bruce because it's very clear Mike Ashley appointed him to be the public punching bag so he could stand in the background and avoid the the haymakers he took while Rafa was in charge. It was the same thing with with Bobby. Like, Graeme Souness took a lot of that abuse from the fan base for what was going wrong. Whereas when Bobby was in charge, even when things went wrong, it was Bobby wasn't going to get blamed because Bobby would proven he was a great manager. The owners were the issue. It's the same thing now. So I do think you're right. I think when Bobby left, it emboldened the owners to appoint substandard managers. And we see, like, Souness is an okay manager, but not a particularly good one. Glenn Roder, not a particularly good manager. Uh, Nigel Pearson took over then they appoint Sam Allardyce and then a couple of weeks later enter Mike Mike Ashley Ashley buys into the club in May 2007 how has it been almost 14 years since that man bought into the club and you know it's just been it's been one issue after another since then and obviously multiple relegations including um, I think his second or third season. Then you know, is it three relegations? It's two, uh, two relegations, possibly a third this season. But to 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 give that context, Newcastle have only have had six in their whole entire history. So yeah. that's a third of the relegations Un- under Mike Ashley and un- and in the last decade and a half, inside the last decade and a half. And what I will say is, I I, I do think when Ashley took over, he probably did have decent intentions for the club I just yeah. don't think he ever really understood what I mean the fact that he didn't do his take. due diligence on the on the on the on the debts no sort of shows exactly. you where his attitude was so he, I think he came in with the with all the intentions of going yeah let's have a, a little bit of a laugh let's let's see where we can go with it and then walk through the door sees the debts and goes oh hang on mm. and then and then this sort of, and then there was all this sort of weird. Instantly, when he brings Kevin Keegan back, having chased Harry Redknapp, by the way, so he didn't actually want Keegan. Keegan was just there, and a quick sort of PR victory with with the fans. 
you, you know, it, it, it's one you're going to win. So he, he, he appoints Keegan, then a week later appoints Dennis Wise as director of football, which if anybody knows what how Kevin Keegan worked in his first spell and what Kevin Keegan is like as a man, very mm. emot- emotional, heart on his sleeve. He used to do all of the jobs in the first spell at Newcastle. He would do the contracts. He would bring the players in, get them around the table, talk to them about why he would, would want to join Newcastle. And that's how they were able to sign the likes of Ginola Ferdinand even Shearer, I know Shearer was a Geordie, but he still needed convincing against Manchester United and, of course. and Ferguson. Um, and that's what Keegan was great at. And that's what he tried to do it with Luka Modric and um, as, as the best example of him trying to get Luka Modric around the table and saying, come and join Newcastle. His agent was a big fan. But because the board, he, he was answering to these people around him before he was answering to Ashley, including uh, Dennis Wise and a guy called Tony Jimenez. The, gen, the, the the story goes that Keegan got Keegan got um, Modric's agent around the table and said the deal was all virtually agreed. And this Tony Jimenez, who was apparently a steward at Chelsea before or something, I, I don't really know the story. Oh, the Cockney Mafia. Says, yeah, he's he's not he's he's not good enough. He's not he's not strong enough. He's not good enough for the Premier League. And uh, and then the agent gets offended and walks away and goes and t- talks to Spurs. He goes to Real Madrid, wins the Ballon d'Or, and the rest is history. Who's vindicated all these years later? It's obviously Kevin Keegan, who was vindicated at the time, but he was swinging swimming against the tide right from the start. And I think the fact that Ashley probably did buy the club with the intentions of doing something greater, but as soon as he walked through the door, having not bothered to do his due diligence, not bothered to look at the at the at the throbbing debts that because Newcastle were on the hiding to becoming leads. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Um, and, and in fairness to Ashley. He did clear the debts with the loan, but he cleared the debts. That's something he did, but he only did it because he didn't because he had no other option. If he did, if he if he if if he saw the debts, he wouldn't have bought the club, and if he or if he bought the club, he 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 certainly would have you know he would have he sold it by now because he yeah exactly Newcastle he, Newcastle no... would have gone the way of Leeds. There's no question. You're absolutely right, and then yeah. his investment would have been worth a fraction of of what he put in. He yeah, has exactly. to clear the debts. Precisely, and that's the th- that's the point. And I think that when you talk about somebody like Kevin Keegan, and he is like to to most Newcastle fans. I mean, I don't know if you saw it was his birthday at the weekend, and yeah. the Newcastle hashtag, any the hashtag NUFC was just filled with love. It was like it was like work, like somebody called him the Pied Piper, I think. And it's like this, like beyond even Bobby, because Bobby is a is a symptom of Bobby coming in is a symptom of what Keegan started in a sense. So, and and I'm telling this story for people who don't remember the Keegan era, but also let's caveat that there are also people who do know the Keegan era who, and I was trying to ask players who were played in both like Robbie Elliott, for example, I asked him about, I said, Oh, did you see any similarities between the Bobby, Bobby era and the Keegan era? And he said, there's absolutely no similarities because other than the fact they were, they were challenged at the top of the table, the Keegan era was just this incredible ride that 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 he started, and then so Ashley comes in and 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 tramples on all of that. We know what he did to Rafa Benitez as well. He, I mean, I I would say you know the fact that the fact that what Rafa Benitez did in the way he did it, and the the, the how he had his hands tied behind his back. We, it's such a shame that we never got to see. In a way, we never got to see the great uh, a free Rafa, a Rafa who was able to do what he what he what he did it. It's sort of um, Valencia, what he was able to do at times at Liverpool. I know he had trouble with the ownership there as well, but in, at Napoli as well. And, 
he, where he was able to go and do what he could. But we saw a brilliant Benitez in that he was able to not he was able to to take everything that Ashley threw at him. And oh, all right, he left at the end of his contract. He took everything Ashley threw at him and somehow made a success of it because he was just that brilliant. And that kind of what you were saying about unpopular ownership and 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 Bobby turning it round, that's kind of the same sort of thing. He was undermined towards the end of his towards the end of his reign, particularly. He had a lot of negative, difficult conversations with Freddie Shepherd, who was a big fan and and dealt and and was socialized with the likes of Keegan and Dalgleish. Didn't socialize with Bobby. Didn't openly admitted he didn't know Bobby as a person very well, but he knew that he was a brilliant manager and respected him as a manager. But there was this sort of whole thing around. There was a little bit of that Benitez Ashley sort of thing in a in a lesser sense in a different context. But Bobby was able to galvanize in the way that Benitez was, and it's just and it's just a shame that it felt like as soon as things turned a little bit south, people jumped on him and 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 put him as the shield to to their own faults and for example I'll give you a perfect example of that one uh, interview that that Freddie Shepherd gives about Sir Bobby where he talks about oh he was he didn't give enough uh, he hasn't got enough value out of all he names a load of players he spent about as much as Arsene Wenger has and hasn't got any value out of players uh, we need to go and get value value for money and then in the next two summers buys Freddie uh, uh, Patrick Clivert, who's passed it and gave him a crazy contract, and then the next summer goes and pays double what Michael Owen is is really worth. Let's be fair, um, because of you know, and and just because of a pure vanity project. Where's the value in that? And yet he, that's apparently the reason he gave for Bobby Robson being sacked, which is just it just sh- it just shows that he wasn't given the respect he deserves in the end. And that's where I sort of draw the comparison between Benitez and Ashley, and as you said, um. Freddie and uh, Freddie and Sir Bobby, but the other thing is to consider as well is if, if Bobby is achieving what he's achieving, and a lot of the signings aren't working, then maybe the change that's needed is the process and how you sign players and how you identify players, rather than the manager. If you look at Newcastle, the entire history of the club, and you just take a simple stat like managerial win percentage. Mm-hmm. There's only two, sorry, there's only three full-time managers in the history of the club who've got a better win percentage than Sir Bobby. Chris Hewton, yeah. who managed in the championship for his his season and then half a season in the Premier League. That's it, 64 games, that's it. Bobby was 255 games, all in the Premier League, so not really comparable. Kevin mm-hmm. Keegan, 251 games. 55% win percentage. George Martin back in the 40s, again, also managed in the second division, 49%. And then Sir Bobby. That's it. George Martin, 155 yeah. games. Kevin Keegan and Sir Bobby. That's it. Nobody else comes close. So I just, I look at what Bobby did. And, you know, I mean, Frank Watt was obviously a great manager for Newcastle back in, you know, the early part of the last century, but it's not comparable to now. Nobody else has come to Bobby's level since even Rafa, as well as he did, didn't reach Bobby's level. And Newcastle haven't been the same club. No. Let's turn back to the book. Talk to me about the process of writing the book, contacting players, 
doing the interviews. How, what was that experience like? So I set out with the book. I always wanted to write a book, and this this idea hit me around the time. So it's gone parallel to the to, to lockdowns and and the coronavirus. It really has kept me sane at a difficult time. But I I decided to do it just before lockdown started, um, and I went to visit. Uh, you know the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation, who I'm making a voluntary donation to, with my um, with my the the percentage of the sales that I make, um, and and there's a chapter at the end of the book that talks about the foundation as well. I went to to visit um, to visit the PR woman Liz Luff about that and explain about it, um, and she said she would help contact people. She contacted Mark um, Robson, his his son, who was very gracious. Uh, Charlie Woods, who I mentioned off the back of that, the chief scout and close friend who who was another person, John Carver, Shay Given, um, Norbertson, all these people were were willing to help me basically because I explained that I wasn't a threat to what to I was I was wanting to write a book that celebrated Sir Bobby and and con- put him in context the context of how well he did because I watched those documentaries and as great as they are and as understandable as it is to talk about England all the time it frustrates me that Newcastle has kind of left as a sort of afterthought. Whereas, so when I was going and contacting the likes of uh, Nobby, Shay, and all of these people, who are childhood heroes of mine, by the way, let's be let's be frank about it. Um, it was, I think I was, if I was contacting them then to, to write an article for a newspaper, I probably wouldn't have got very far. Because, uh, but because I was contacting them to write about a book that celebrated Sir Bobby and, and allowed them to to remember Sir Bobby in a way that they that they like to. I think it made it very easy to contact people. I got almost everybody I wanted and set out to, to do. I got everyone who was really important to the story in terms of you want somebody from the boardroom who I got to John Hall to, to give me to give me twenty minutes. Um, I wanted sort of someone from the coaching staff mentioned John Carver, his family uh, with um, Mark and Charlie Woods, his friend who was the chief scout, Gordon Milne was the director of football, got all of those people who were sort of his inner circle, if you like, when he was at the club. So I got everybody I really wanted. And it was important to me that he, that, that he, that, that I, I went and said, look, I'm not, I'm going to make a donation as well. I think that also helped, but I think mainly it was because it's just an opportunity to talk about how great Sir Bobby was and everybody, everybody jumped at that chance to do that. I think it says an awful lot about the man, not the manager, but the man that yeah. 16 years after he leaves Newcastle, 11 years after he passes away, tragically, yeah. those people are still wanting to protect his legacy and his memory. Because yeah, and I think time that, changes yeah. people's view of things, but it hasn't changed anyone's view of Sir Bobby. He is still beloved. He is still, as a man, he is still held in the highest regard. And I think that that bit alone, what you've just said, that tells you everything you ever need to know about him. Yeah, and I think the final chapter of the book, as I mentioned, is about the foundation, but it's not really a detailed sort of thing about what the foundation does in terms of the the sort of the it's about it's a it's a it's a drug. It, it, it's a drug trial for cancer thing. It, it raises money to test drugs for cancer and make it and help a, help find a cure for cancer. But really, it's about the emotion of why he did it, 
uh, uh, that basically he was someone who cared about people. And that's the, what you take away from Sir Bobby is that even if you didn't know him, his kindness and his the 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 willingness to help and give people opportunities. If you look at the people he he helped into, just Jose, you know, Jose Mourinho, he he helps into management. Andre Villas Boas, he gives a mm. first. You know, he meets his, he's a sixteen year old lad who complains about how how many managers did you know that in re- let's be fair. But do you think Jurgen Klopp's a brilliant man? Could you imagine him taking a sixteen year old? And not who who asks to go to training because he's complaining about um, because he's complaining about a player in the squ- in the squad says can I come to training with you and he goes yeah come on get jump in the car and then they go off to training and he sets him up on a path towards towards um, becoming a manager and you know Charlie Woods in the book tells me a story about how when he left Ipswich to go to England he gets the, the chairman on the phone he goes and sees see the chairman says you can't let Charlie Woods go. Uh, because he's, you know, I want to look after Charlie before I go. He said, can you, you know, and the chairman rings Charlie up and says, can you give him, I'm going to give you a seven-year contract. Yeah. All on Bobby's say-so. That That is the, the fundamental thing. Forget the football manager. Forget the, forget anything else. The fundamental thing about Sir Bobby Robson that you need to know is that he's an incredibly kind man who cared about people. And that's what really is the book is is all about. It's just how, just incredibly incredibly kind and and that isn't a criticism of Jurgen Klopp or anyone who wouldn't do it it's just incredibly crazy that Bobby did that for Andrew Villas-Boas or anybody really oh that, completely that, 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 yeah it's just it's just I can't think of anybody else who would do the same thing and that it's just and it just it, almost I don't know why you would <laughs> in a way but he did and and that's just what he's that's just what he was he was like and um and that's you know as I say, the thing that you get, especially in the in the final chapter when you talk about the foundation, is how much he cared. How even when he got incredibly ill and he was really not well enough to do things, like I don't know if you remember there was a charity football match at St James's Park a few days before he passed away. Yeah, and he wasn't supposed to be there. He appears. He there was countless events in the year sort of leading up to that when his health is deteriorating. And he goes to these events and he stays and he signs autographs and he t- poses for pictures. And then in the next day, Liz, uh, who, who, as I mentioned, does the, 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 uh, the PR, she tells me that he, he goes, to, he's in bed all day because he can't get out of bed because he's used up all his energy going and going and signing these autographs. And that's just, even at the very, very end of his life, he still cares about other people. That is forget the football manager, forget the anything else, forget Barcelona, forget Newcastle. At the end of the day, he's just he's just an incredibly kind person, and you don't see that in football. I don't. I actually think that's almost unique. I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head who comes close to being as kind as he was. Mm. Um, and 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 I, and I do. And I, you know, I'm sure I, I, there are plenty of lovely people in in in, the, in football. It's not this. Sort of like you know, I know it's it's a difficult industry, but there are plenty of people out there who 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 are kind people. But he just took it to a new level, and I think that that's that's what I really wanted to paint the picture of when I was writing the book. I totally agree. I totally agree. And the Vias Boas story is is one of my favourite things that's ever happened in football. This this man who's sixty one, he's an established great manager, has managed England, has won things with Ipswich, has won titles with with. Uh, PSV Eindhoven, he's now at Porto, he meets this 16-year-old kid who tells him what he's doing wrong and he just takes him under his wing 
Uh, and he'd done yeah. the same with Mourinho, who, you know, without Bobby would not be a football manager, let alone one of the greatest managers of all time. The last thing I want to ask you about then is the forward in the book is written by one of my favorite journalists, George Culkin. Did you approach him? Did he approach you? What was that process like? <laughs> um, well, I know George because I cover football. I cover Newcastle uh, in you know, pre-lockdown terms. I was going to the games and I, I got to know George pretty well. Uh, he's a lovely person, but also uh, an absolute poet. Mm-hmm. So um, I one of the things when I spoke to Liz about the book, was, and he's a, a patron of the foundation as well, which is important um, to mention that that he and he also wrote Bobby's last book with him. So there was also there were reasons why he should write the book outside of the fact that he was a brilliant writer anyway. But it was one of the first things I wanted to do, and I approached him uh, like before. I think I approached him just after I got the book accepted, a couple of weeks after I got the book accepted by the publishers. Um, and he was he was great. The forward is typically brilliant. That was something that I wanted to to do, as I said, straight away, was I knew that he was the person to write the forward, not just because he's um, he's fantastic as a, as a writer and has this ability that I think is kind of, I, I don't know if it, I wouldn't, I, yeah, I think it is unrivaled in my mind because uh, maybe just because, I have such a, an emotional connection to Newcastle, but everything he, he has this ability to paint a picture of emotion like, like nobody else I know to put it on on a page on a page and sort of sum up a, sum up how somebody feels, how how he feels and how other people feel so brilliantly. So marrying all that together, it was perfect that he was the only person I wanted to write the forward, and thank God he said yes because it's um it's just a brilliant piece of writing. The book. Is called Black and White Night, How Sir Bobby Robson Made Newcastle United Again by Harry DeCosmo. Harry's Twitter is at Harry DeCosmo, H-A-R-R-Y-D-E-C-O-S-E-M-O. The foundation that Harry's mentioned a couple of times is SirBobbyRobsonFoundation.org.uk. So do check that out. The book is from our good friends at Pitch Publishing, um, who are just, they're the very best when it comes to to football uh, football related books and um i believe that the the book is out on the 15th of march is that right yep the 15th of march and you can come to me and i can uh, and i can sign a copy for you if you want you can just dm, DM me on the twitter handle that you've just mentioned it's also uh, it's available uh, via the publishers pitch as you mentioned but also via uh, amazon um waterstones and wh smith and pretty much everywhere that you would expect to find these books I'm definitely buying buying a copy. I would urge people to buy a copy. Uh, Bobby Robson is an iconic figure, an iconic human being. And uh, I think this book is something we should all support. Harry, thank you so much for your time. And uh, hopefully, hopefully chat to you again soon. Podcast Network.